Good evening. Well, if we believe US military intelligence, the war in the Ukraine could start this week, perhaps as early as Wednesday. Either way, there's been an intense round of diplomacy going on. People flying in and out of Kiev, of Moscow, global leaders on long telephone conversations, France, Germany, America, and of course, the United Kingdom too. We're told that Boris Johnson, after a Cobra meeting tomorrow, will be on a whistle-stop tour of Europe in an attempt to stop the war. And the Prime Minister today said, in a visit to Rosyth Dockyard, we need to learn the lessons of 2014. Well, what happened in 2014 in the Ukraine was a revolution, albeit a pretty peaceful one. An elected leader removed from office, and then, of course, the Crimea taken by Vladimir Putin's forces. And yes, Mr Johnson, we do need to learn the lessons of 2014 because it was the European Union wanting to expand, wanting, wanting the Ukraine to join it that directly led to that revolution. And people stood there in the squares of Kiev waving European Union flags, their country having already been the beneficiary of pre-accession aid. That's money to you and me. I have thought for 30 years that the NATO policy, the EU policy of expanding ever eastwards was a huge strategic error. Yes, we know the Russians can be paranoid, but why poke the Russian bear with a stick? And if Vladimir Putin's one demand is that we state clearly that the Ukraine is not going to join NATO, why don't we do it? Well, some of you may say, isn't that appeasement? Isn't that giving in? But ask yourself a different question. What possible strategic benefit or asset could it be to us for the Ukraine to join NATO? Absolutely none whatsoever that I can see. So I think what Boris Johnson needs to do is to rethink the geopolitics of all of this, to convince other EU leaders, to convince the Americans that that is what we need to say. We take away... Putin's causes, Belli. Uh, and actually, I think if Putin gets that, he won't invade and a war can be avoided. That's my view. That's my take. No one I speak to thinks the Ukraine joining NATO is a good idea, yet nobody, but nobody out there says what I've just said, that we should state clearly that they're not going to join. So let me know what you think. Can the war be stopped? Uh, Farage at GBNews.uk. Please give me your views. Well, joining me now is Mark White, GB News' home and security editor. So, Mark, we're expecting the Prime Minister to head off around Europe in the next few days. Yes, he was on this levelling up tour up north today and decided to cut that short to come back down to London. We're told that he's going to chair a full meeting of the crisis cabinet, Cobra, tomorrow. Yeah. Then after that, probably the next day, he's going to be heading off to uh, Baltic and Nordic countries to express the UK uh, support for those countries that are understandably quite concerned about what's unfolding on the border of Ukraine at the moment. Now, a lot has been made of this US intelligence warning. Now, they are saying the Wednesday is an optimum yeah. time as far as they're concerned. They're not necessarily saying that war is going to happen on Wednesday, but their intelligence assessment is that all of the forces, all of the assets that Vladimir Putin needed to get into place over recent months are now there. The ground troops, the uh, artillery, the tanks, uh, the medical support teams, 
same with the, the naval military assets in Crimea, uh, Russian Air Force. All of those assets are in place so that come Wednesday is the ass- assessment of the US atel- yeah. intelligence services. If Vladimir Putin decided to push the button to go, then they could. Yeah, I mean, they pretty much got Ukraine encircled, haven't they, from Belarus right the way round to the Crimea. The other school of thought was that actually, if he was going to invade, he wouldn't do it until there'd been a sort of spell of prolonged cold weather and hard, frosty ground, because that pretty heavy mechanised gear could struggle. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it's pretty uh, muddy and awful terrain there uh, that he would have to negotiate with his heavy uh, artillery and tanks. Um, and of course, it's... Ukraine's not going to be uh, any sort of easy win for yeah. him. There is a standing army of 250,000, reservists up to 300,000, and we've seen the pictures that have been coming out today. These are the pictures, obviously, of Russian forces training, but we've seen a much low-level affair where uh, men and women, some women in their late 70s and 80s, yeah. are training to use weapons. They will fight. Many will fight. It will be a bloody affair. Uh, but, of course, we don't know what the calculus is in Vladimir Putin's head. Does he want concessions? Clearly, he wants concessions. What would he be satisfied with? Well, is it, I think... Is it this expression... He's made that, it clear, hasn't he, really? Yeah. I mean, it's about NATO. Um, I don't think he could get that public declaration, though. If there are assurances made um, on the quiet to Vladimir Putin, maybe that might be enough. But then again, he's mistrustful of the West because he says that Russia was given these assurances after the fall of uh, the Soviet Union that there would be no eastward expansion of NATO. And then what did we get? We got 14 Eastern European yeah. countries that joined NATO in the years since the fall of the yeah. No, no, Soviet the EU Union. and NATO kind of expanding together, yeah. really, ever eastwards. And in many ways, the European countries looking pretty divided on this. Uh, Germany, uh, clearly, with its reliance on gas, uh, taking a much softer position than everybody else. And this extraordinary idea that surfaced today, that the UK should be in- invited to join some new sort of European Security Council. Yes, well, indeed. I mean, as far as uh, Europeans are concerned, they obviously, I think they've always recognised that, you know, in Europe, uh, the UK is the foremost military power. I mean, there's France, but actually, Mm. in terms of assets, uh, then you are really looking at the UK and the ability uh, for expeditionary warfare. Um, So... Uh, yes, I mean, I think... Um, we miss you. That's what they say. We miss Brexit Britain. Well, I, I, and I think the, the, the UK <laughs> would actually quite like to assume that uh, rather important position as well, if we're wrong. Well, if we're, if, if we're going to chair it, then maybe that's right. Mark White, thank you very much indeed. Well, yes, a lot of, as I say, intense diplomacy that's been going on. Um, and maybe Mark White is right. Maybe a private assurance to Putin. Uh, that the Ukraine's not going to join NATO, would do the job. Well, joining me now to discuss all of this is James Gator, a former Royal Naval officer and spokesman for British forces and NATO's Afghan press office, now a partner at Special Project Partners. James, the, the intelligence that America's given us over the weekend, um, do we believe that? Well, it goes without saying that it's not just the intelligence that the Americans would have given us. As you know, the Five Eyes group uh, share intelligence at the highest of levels. 
And so, so far as the intelligence that's been made public goes, it's pretty clear that uh, an advanced level of planning has been reached. Yeah. And how do we stop it? You know, I mean, all these people flying back and forth to Moscow and to Kiev. Um, I mean, am I right in thinking Putin's demand is perfectly clear? It is that the Ukraine doesn't join NATO. Why don't we just concede that? Well, well, Nigel, there is indeed a whiff of Munich in the air, because, frankly, you know, we don't know whether uh, the the need of Vladimir Putin is is as clear as we might think. Well, he's made it very clear. That's what he says. And we've even managed through our through our own strategic idiocy to have driven him into the arms of a Chinese Communist Party over this issue of NATO expansion. As I said earlier, I felt for 30 years we've been pushing way, way, way too far east. I suspect privately, James, a lot of people might agree with me. Well, I, I think it's laying quite a lot at the door um, of, um, of the European states, whether they are in the EU or not, to have driven, uh, quote unquote, um, Putin into the hands of the Chinese. I think the Chinese have their own agenda, to be perfectly frank. Um, look at their Belt and Road Initiative. Look at their mm. uh, activities in the continent of Africa. I don't think we, we need, well, they need Vladimir Putin uh, to, to up their autocratic stakes. Uh, let's no, not mention but they, the Uyghurs. But they did have this summit last week, you yes, know, and, and, I, and I thought it was pretty extraordinary. So is my, is my idea, I mean, and by the way, I don't think saying no to something that strategically offers us nothing, and it's a very divided country, would be a liability I think, on the NATO partnership. I don't believe that is appeasement. I believe that's a sensible change of geopolitical positioning. Is that completely... Is, is what I'm suggesting completely off the table? Well, I would say that regardless... If you make that concession, and it would be seen as a concession, mm -hmm. I think we need to return a little bit, by the way, to what is the outcome that Vladimir Putin desires? Yes, of course, he might have 130,000 troops in various locations um, around yep. uh, Ukraine. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to use them, no matter how many field hospitals or advanced logistics pipelines he's uh, implemented. Maybe the outcome he desires is the concession that, that, that you've already mentioned. And mm. if so, then his gamble will have worked were we to concede. Yes, that's absolutely true. No, that is absolutely true. But I, I'm not terribly keen on a war breaking out, the biggest war in Europe for 75 years. What other means do we have to stop this? Well, look, Nigel, this is an information war. Um, you know, the, the issue that we have is that the adversary in this case, by which I mean Russia, mm -hmm. um, is, is highly tuned to the world of asymmetric warfare. That is to say, warfare con conducted by non-conventional means. Um, and, of course, the Ukrainians are very familiar, given what happened in Crimea and, of course, in the Donbass region. Um, but it's not just, of course, um, the uh, Ukrainians. Uh, the Moldovans have seen much the same thing. We have seen uh, Russian disinformation and misinformation. So, to answer your question, mm. we need to get much better at uh, the information war. And it won't just be this one. Fighting wars with information, fighting asymmetric campaigns, are the types of wars we will fight now and in the future. But we're a high-tech country. What's our problem? Well, yes, we're a high-tech country, and we have uh, some of the finest armed forces in the world. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we have some of the finest strategic communication, uh, communications yeah. personnel in the world. You know, we have in this country some of the finest right-brain thinkers, some of the finest left-brain thinkers in the world. We have some of the best advertising companies, the finest consultancies. Why is it that we aren't 
taking full advantage of those organisations. Um, you know, otherwise unaffordable skills, drawing them together and using them to our advantage. Because, you see, in asymmetry, uh, Vladimir Putin can make up whatever he likes and does. And, of course, we can't because we have to abide by uh, due process and rules, a rules-based organisation. We're a rules-based democracy, regardless of um, perhaps opinions on what's been happening over the last couple of years. We still are. Um, so, therefore, we need to get much better at what we can do. Interesting. No, that is interesting. And for your money, is he going to invade? I'd venture to say there'll be some sort of uh, information campaign giving rise to activities predominantly in the East, uh, where, of course, as you know, um, there is uh, sympathy by virtue of uh, false flag operations already. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't, I don't think there's anything in it for the Russians to become embroiled in a, in a long-term land campaign? No. Well, they did this in Afghanistan 40 years ago and it was a complete and utter disaster. The danger, I suppose, finally is that when you've got troops massed on a border like this, you know, accidents can happen. Well, indeed they can. And, uh, you know, we must be ready for that. We should be using those aforementioned skills, regardless of mm. our military presence on the ground. We should be uh, helping the Ukrainians with their information campaign because it is information that will win uh, whatever campaigns waged against them. Interesting. James Gaynor, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Well, folks, you've got my view on this. Let me know what you think. Can the war be stopped? Give me your views, please. Farage at gbnews.uk. In a moment, we will discuss something that I, I find quite senseless. The government have told Quadrilla, the company with the two boreholes up just outside Blackpool in Lancashire, that those boreholes must be permanently filled in and they've sent the big signal there's to be no more fracking. Against this, Lord Frost and 29 prominent Conservatives over the weekend said we need a big rethink. In a moment, we'll debate fracking. Can the war in the Ukraine be stopped? And what do you think about my idea to say no further eastward expansion of NATO? Jimmy says, hate to say it, but this one needs to be filed under not our problem. Look to fixing things at home first, of which there are many problems. Well, that's not uh, as true. But if we are about to have the outbreak of the most serious military conflict in 70 years, we do need to discuss it properly. Another says Russia won't invade. It's the West wanting an invasion. Well, government's in trouble sometimes like this sort of thing, I suppose. Craig says it's not Russia throwing the Minsk agreement under a bus. Well, that's a fair point. Another says Russia have repeatedly said that it's an exercise and they're not going to invade. NATO is the aggressor screaming about war. Well, I tell you what, if the Ukraine was to join NATO, that would be rather like the Cuban Missile Crisis in reverse, wouldn't it? You know, that's what happened in the early 1960s. Russian military kit, missiles sent to Cuba... America and the West were absolutely terrified. Why are we trying to do the same to Putin? It doesn't make any sense. Joe says, no, World War Three will happen. Well, let's hope you're wrong, Joe. Now, the Preston New Road site in Lancashire was where Quadrilla had sunk two deep 
horizontal drills, and that is to extract shale gas. They've been ordered by the government to permanently plug those sites and to do so within the next few weeks. Lord Goldsmith uh, has defended this and said that Britain doesn't want to have gas production, certainly doesn't want to have fracking, so we'll just buy it from Norway and that's fine. Others, like Lord Frost, who I mentioned before the break, are furious. Uh, I personally think what we're doing is completely mad. But to have a debate on this, I'm joined by Peter Stiles, an emeritus professor in applied and environmental geophysics at Keele University, and Bob Dennett, founder of Frack Free Lancashire. Gentlemen, good evening. Uh, Bob Dennett, I want to begin with you. Uh, this government very committed to wind energy, which all sounds very noble, um, other, than, other, of course, than the huge amount of taxpayer subsidy that goes into it. But when the wind doesn't blow, we need gas. And we are importing more and more gas from overseas. In fact, uh, you know, by 2040, uh, it'll be 80% of the gas used in this country is being imported. So it's being produced, uh, the carbon emissions are happening anyway, doesn't it make more sense to produce our own gas rather than importing it from Qatar, Norway and Russia? Well, first, first and foremost, I'll say that uh, we import less than 1% of gas from Russia, Russia and that comes in as a LNG, so it's not coming yes. into the grid. Well, no, Norway is what Lord Goldsmith mentioned, but wherever it comes from, the, the fact is we are importing an increasing amount of gas. It's damaging our balance of payments, especially with prices rising. There are worries about security. Wouldn't it make more sense to do it here? But we, we are also exporting more and more gas. Uh, an article in the Daily Mail dated the 29th of January said that we doubled our exports in the last few months. So if it comes down to a, a question of whether we're importing or exporting gas, perhaps we should stop exporting and use the gas that was being produced from the North Sea. Bob Dennett, we are net large importers of gas. The volume of gas net we import is going up every year. As we, as we continue to attempt to become the Saudi Arabia of wind, which I think is a very mistaken policy, we're going to need to import more and more gas. So the point is, this stuff is being produced. We are consuming it. Doesn't it make more sense? And wouldn't it be actually environmentally more friendly to do it here? Well, certainly not environmentally more friendly doing it by the process of fracking. Uh, Peter and I have discussed this before. Uh, fracking is a dirty and dangerous business. And one, around about 6% of the wells fail upon installation, and they all fail during their lifetime. That, that enables leakage of chemicals, methane, and other obnoxious substances into the atmosphere and into the local land. That frac fracking causes earthquakes. The, the, the industry tell us that the fracking does not cause earthquakes, that they're too minor. Well, the last, the last earthquake we ha had, had here was a 2.9. Yeah. caused 197 properties to be damaged. Yeah, well, actually so, 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 Bob, the argument is... Earthquakes. So the argument is gas extraction is a nasty business. Let's let other countries do it. I'm going to bring in Peter Stiles. Uh, Peter, Peter, there's been a... You know, Bob Dennett and others like him speak with huge passion on this subject. 
Um, and they've had considerable sway over the course of the last few years. Are there other methods of gas extraction than fracking that could be practical and could work? Hello, hello Nigel. Hello, Bob. Good evening. We're old, hello, our old yeah. friends. Um, I talk about this a lot. In fact, I've been talking about it for uh, many decades. Um, you can kind of sum it up with three S's where the government has actually done this badly. The first of all is storage. Right, we closed the rough field off Yorkshire, so we have virtually no storage. We have some in Cheshire. I live in Cheshire, in Salt. Uh, the second is the spot market, and that now we have to buy it at whatever price is on the uh, is current, and that can be very high. And the third is shale. Now, uh, for various reasons, I had conversations with Quadrilla before they even started fracking. Because for 40 years, I've been monitoring induced seismicity. That's small earthquakes caused by uh, things like coal mining, uh, caused by landslides. Um, and I told them before they started that what they needed to do was to install seismic monitoring. Because we could have actually monitored the process. My introduction to this was monitoring emissions of gas, which were catastrophic in coal mines. People died, people were suffocated, there were actually explosions. I devised systems of microseismics which allowed us to actually control that process by looking at the seismicity as it happened. Now, Quadrilla, I guess they thought, what does this, what does this British guy know about uh, anything to do with this? And so they actually didn't take my advice. We then had fracking and we had earthquakes. The day after the first earthquake, my research group, installed a seismic monitoring network and then monitored the rest of the processes. We could have done that beforehand, but we didn't. So from that point of view, it was never done correctly. OK, so, so, so mistakes were made. Um, I certainly haven't heard in America, you know, where they're extracting shale gas in huge quantities. I certainly haven't heard from there about large protest groups or anything of the kind. But it's this word fracking, isn't it? This is the word that has got into the mind of, of, of many of the British public, is there another method that can be used? Well, you have, right. In this process, you actually have to uh, generate small fractures within the rock because that's how the gas um, escapes and is, is captured. It used to be called hydraulic stimulation. Fracking is, if you like, the, uh, you know, the, the word which has uh, become current. But uh, what we are doing is we're using... Uh, high pressure water to produce small fractures through which gas can actually be produced. Ten years ago, I met with Claire Perry, who was the energy minister at the time, and I explained to her that it would have been possible to carry this out beneath the Irish Sea, not beneath Preston New Road. And you could have drilled at the coast, you could have drilled out into the Irish Sea and carry out the first fracking under the Irish Sea. And she was interested. She asked her civil servants to look at it. While I was there, I heard nothing more about it. So this was not necessarily a process which needed to be carried out in this place at this time and in this way. OK, now, well, Peter Stiles, I tell you what, this, debate's gonna, this debate really is going to become a big political issue um, over the course of the I'm sure it months. is. I'm, I'm certain of that. And finally, um, Bob Dennett, are you in favour of nuclear? No. 
I see. So you're not in favour of unless, you're not in favour of gas. You're not in, unless ha, I mean, can, what are we going to do to sort of live on candles for the rest of our lives? Unless they can find a safer way of doing the nuclear, which they are they are working on. They're, they're, right. they're, they're working on it and they're making progress with it. Mm. They need to make more progress before nuclear itself will become safe. And well, I have to say, Bob- since you mentioned nuclear, <laughs> part part of the purpose of fracking is that it will produce hundreds and hundreds of boreholes, which will ultimately become the storage place for the 17 million tonnes of nuclear waste we've got stored in the UK. Uh, I don't think so, for one moment. It would all depend on geology, but I tell you what, it'd be a cold old world, wouldn't it, Bob, if you had your way? Gentlemen, we will return to this debate. I know we will. It's becoming a bigger and bigger issue. To me, I have to say, the government closing up these borehole sites is just complete and utter lunacy. Now, Pretty Patel is going, she says, shortly to announce means by which those who come into this country across the English Channel or in the back of lorries will be flown out to offshore processing plants, destinations. And Africa apparently is top of the list. Uh, We don't know exactly which country it is going to be. Now, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? I guess on the one hand, it would be very very expensive and all sorts of guesstimates that it might cost billions every year. But would it perhaps dissuade people from coming? So could there be an upside to it? Or do we run the risk that sending people to offshore processing centres will lead to all sorts of horrible stories? Well, joining me is Beth Gardner-Smith, CEO of refugee charity Safe Passage. Beth, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Now, I think your charity initially was involved really with the, the, big, the big movement of people that was taking place across the Mediterranean. Um, but I guess the principles are similar across the English Channel. The numbers that are coming, as you know, are rising rapidly. They trebled last year to 28,000. Um, no one quite knows what this year will be, but 60, 70,000 is the estimate. The Home Secretary is trying to put an end to this. Um, How do you see the prospect of flying people off to Africa or elsewhere for offshore processing centres? Well, the first thing I'd say is it's totally inhumane and we'd oppose it on principle. But the second point is that, in fact, it's also totally unworkable and incredibly expensive. So our charity is part of a coalition of charities of over 300 charities called Together with Refugees. And we've done some analysis which suggests that in total, the government's sort of proposed package of measures that they're bringing forward in their nationality and borders bill, which include offshoring, um, would cost uh, the taxpayer an extra £2.7 billion a year. That's a year. Um, Now, it's it's worth saying also that the government hasn't produced these figures. We have had to produce these figures because the government has so far refused to do so. Um, I mean, mean, the figures, Beth, the figures are are speculative. The figures are speculative, but I wouldn't for one moment disagree with you that it's going to be expensive because it is. How is it inhumane to put people on aeroplanes? It's inhumane to send people to other countries that they have uh, 
most likely no connection with whatsoever um, to process their asylum claims when we can perfectly well do that in this country and have been doing so for many years. But how do you propose to stop this growing tide of young, undocumented males arriving on our shores? I mean, firstly, I, I don't know what the problem with, is with males. Um, <laughs> you're a man. Well, I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you what it is. They're coming, many of them, from areas uh, that have been through war, Syria and places like that. And the chances of us getting a percentage, it'll be small, but it doesn't matter, a percentage of people uh, who have been perhaps seriously radicalised is much more likely in young males than it is in young females. Well, I think you're absolutely right that the majority of people are coming from war-torn countries and they're fleeing war and persecution. That is absolutely the case. Um, and the first thing is that we should treat those people with humanity and compassion and look at their asylum claims seriously, which is what we need to do. Um, now, on the, on the point about um, uh, crossing across the channel, Yes, absolutely. We don't want to see people risking their lives across the channel. Um, but if you look at what's happened um, since 2020, which is when we've seen a really significant increase in the rise of people, what have we seen from this government? We've seen um, we've seen a doubling down on the policies that aren't working in the channel. And we've also seen a closing down of safe routes that were offering people an alternative to be able to come to the UK, reunite with family and join family and relatives. Um, and claim asylum safely and humanely. So if you look at cause and effect, actually what this government has done and actually you know, where you've seen the rising crossings in the last couple of years, um, there is a direct link with the government's closure of safe routes um, and their uh, unworkable and inhumane policies in the channel, which they're trying to put for, forward more of, um, and the, the rise in, in, in dangerous journeys across the channel, which nobody wants to see. And what would be an acceptable number of young men to come into the country every year? 100,000, 200,000, more? I think we should be doing our bit as a country, and we're certainly not doing our bit at the moment when it comes to ah. providing protection and asylum to, to refugees um, in a way that is humane. And, and what the government's proposals are, are firstly, incredibly costly, um, and secondly... Uh, so is there, any, is there any limit? Limiting the numbers of people coming. Of course yeah. there is. Um, of course there is. Britain should be doing our bit. Um, no, no, you've said that. You've said that, and I understand that. I'm asking you what you think doing our bit equates to in numbers. What, what our bit looks like doing is providing asylum to genuine uh, people in need of protection, fleeing persecution, um, who, who claim asylum in, here in the UK. And rather than speculate um, about, uh, about figures, what we should be doing is actually looking at the figures um, of this government's costly proposals, which Let's forget about money for a moment. Let's forget about money for a moment. To me, this is an issue of national security undocumented young males, ISIS themselves themselves boasting they're trying to put their operatives into Europe. And what I'm asking you is, why can't you come clean with telling us what you think a reasonable number is? 
what we can come clean on is to tell you what a reasonable approach would be and an actually a workable uh. approach to what's going on at the moment. And if you think that Pretty Patel's policies are going to change what's happening in the channel, you're, you know, the government's own impact assessment suggested they were going to, you know, they were going to make things worse in the channel and put more lives at risk. So actually, well, you know, what we've done is cost their proposals. And what we're pro suggesting is actually a humane and workable approach that would lead to more people coming to the UK safely um, instead of seeing these dangerous journeys well, across the Well, I tell you what, I tell you what, this issue is another one that won't go away because there are going to be a lot of people coming this year and there's a lot of public anger. Beth, thank you very much indeed for joining me this evening. Now, some more reaction from you on the big question of whether war can be stopped. Wayne says, if Putin backs down, he will be shown as weak and I can't see that happening. Simon says, I don't think it's even on the cards. Well, I don't know which way you mean that. Bob says, depends on whether the Americans are determined to start one. Chris says a treaty is required. US, Europe promising not to allow Ukraine into NATO whilst Russia pull back and give up all future annexations. The alternative is World War III. Well, that actually is the proposal that I've been suggesting and the one that I would support. Now, policing, the Met, ever since the resignation of Cressida Dick, and we now see the police unions expressing no confidence in Sadiq Khan. Crime, violent crime in London and many other cities is rising. What's to be done? What's the right approach to policing? Well, I'm lucky to be joined by Tracy Miller, author, youth worker and former violent gang member. I'm going to ask her what works. The GB News pub is open. Joining me tonight is Tracy Miller, author, youth worker and former gang member. Tracy, welcome Thank you for to having me. the programme. Not at all. Now, policing, much in the news. Mm -hmm. And it kind of in London always is, isn't it? You know, you're from Brixton. And I remember, you know, 40 years ago, there were huge disputes about the sus laws. Um, that debate goes on today in terms of stop and search and what the police should do and what the police shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. Cressida Dick's gone. We've now had Ken Marsh of the Police Federation today expressing no confidence in Sadiq Khan. I mean, it's a real, real mess. Before doing these great works that you're doing, um, we're going to share just with the audience a little bit. Uh, you kind of fell into bad ways quite early on. That's correct. When I was younger, absolutely, I just couldn't behave, and that was due to um, a bad home life. Yeah. I just feel like my foundations weren't set correctly, so I felt angry at the world, and I just took my anger to the streets. And you got involved in gangs? Indeed, I did. And those gangs were involved with, I guess, drugs? Various things. Violence? Various things. Well, I mean, I've looked at your CV, and, you know, you sort of carrying knives, and I, th I think you were shot once, and... Is it very easy, living in, in inner London, is it very easy to get involved in gang culture? It's not easy growing up in um, South London or London in particular. And, yeah, there were things that I did when I was younger. You listed a few. It's not yeah. something I'm proud of. No, no, sure. Um, so I don't want your viewers to think that by any means I'm proud of anything I've done in the past. Um, but because of the past that I did have, I felt like I can help 
young people uh, get past it and not, you know, live a wayward life. But, yeah, it is hard. Um, you're surrounded by different things, things that young people shouldn't see. Um, you're exposed to different things, just being on the streets, just walking along your normal estate. So you do pick up stuff that you shouldn't really be picking up or seeing, or, you know? Do you think these young people today growing up in South London or wherever it is, do they resent the police? They don't trust the police. They don't like the police. And it's something that, I can't lie, in, in the like Jamaican household, in the black culture community, the black yep. culture, police are not trusted. You don't speak to police, you don't call for police, you don't ask for help. If you're going through the worst things, you just deal with it yourself. And I think that does need to change. Um, but the police have a job to do. They have a job to do, but what is the job they are actually doing? If it means they're going to keep stopping and searching young black boys in hoodies, it just shows there's an unfairness. Is it a conscious bias? Is it an unconscious bias? And therefore they have no trust in the police. Well, they might be stopping white boys in hoodies. I haven't seen that really often when I'm out and about on the streets. Have you seen young white boys being stopped often? I haven't. I rarely see the police on the streets, <laughs> to be honest with you. I mean, I'd like to see more of them. But... but as I said to you at the start of this conversation, you know, I remember 1981 and that incredible friction that was there between, and it was predominantly Jamaican, or households that had come originally from Jamaica and the police. And kind of what you're telling me is 40 years on, it's no better. It's no better. Um, there are good and bad in all sectors of life. You have some good officers, because I've seen for myself, you know, you've got some officers that genuinely do care, but you've got some bad seeds as well, and they need to be weeded out. It's as simple as that. Knife crime is going up every year. The percentage climbs over the last sort of five, seven years are quite yeah. alarming. It seems that young people now, some young people now, are carrying knives as protection because they think the other person may have a knife. That's fair to say, yep. Uh, and I think that is happening. Yep. Uh, what the hell do we do, Tracy? I just think parents need to grab hold of their children and score them, show them love and let them know that's not the way to be. That's, you know, if you, if you carry a knife, there's that chance that you're actually going to use it. And it's that fear that they have as well. Uh, maybe if they participated in sports and stuff where they could do self-defence, they wouldn't feel the need to be armed. And the thing is, knives are so accessible, they're in your mum's kitchen. They're everywhere. Mm. Um, so... It's something that goes unnoticed. OK, so, par so parenting is important. Parenting is 100%. And you, and you had a bad start on that score. Important. And education yeah. as well. And just, I don't know, a lot, of, a lot of youngsters don't do it. They don't do it because they want to. Like you said, they feel like they have the need. They, they need to do it. They need to protect themselves. So it's just education and letting them know that you all can get on. You all can agree. If you don't, there's fisticuffs. You can have a normal fight. You don't have to want to take a life. You don't have to push a sharp object into someone who you dislike. You know, so it's, they need to be rewired, so to speak. So the parent... I, mean, I get the parenting bit, you know, but not everybody has... An, and you were one. Not everybody has a fortunate home-life situation, so it's yeah. more difficult for them. Um, where do the schools fit in, or don't they? The schools do fit in because they can pick up on children's behaviour from early. For example, when I was going through my wayward behaviour stage, mm -hmm. um, I did have some form of intervention, but it wasn't enough. So they can tell when... Kids seem depressed, something's not right at home. They, they're with kids uh, most of the time. As you are with the family, you are in school. It's like you spend a lot of time at work. I'm sure your colleagues will pick up on, the, on a day when you're not so happy. Oh, almost every day. No, it's not true. <laughs> it's not true. It's not true. So, Tracy, what do you do now to try and inspire people, to try and, to try and help kids not fall off? 
So what I'd done um, in 2014, I think, I released a book um, about my life, and it wasn't for me to glamorise myself and try and be famous or make money. Um, It was about youngsters seeing that actually it's all a dream. What you think it is, it's not that. It was for politicians to look and see what lives were like for children like myself. It was for parents to have a look and think about what children are doing when they're away from their periphery. You know, so I just speak to kids, I mentor um, and do different things. I've got youngsters that can call me on my actual mobile phone any time of the night and let me know that something's not right and I'll just advise them. You can't dictate to children, you can't force them, but you can give them other ways and other things and other viewpoints to look at. And it's all about perceptions, isn't it? Yeah. No, no, no. Well, I get it that you're out there and you're trying and that's a really positive contribution that you're making. But as I said, it does seem things are getting worse. Um, I mean, drugs are just everywhere. Uh, knives yes. are being carried by more and more young people. I mean, do you feel, if you look forward from where we are now, do you feel optimistic we can turn our cities around, or are we in decline? Are we in a downward spiral? I'm always optimistic. I live that kind of life. I live in an optimistic <laughs> bubble. It's good to be positive. Um, I just think youngsters need to... They need more role, model, role models. Also, there's a lot of things that they, they take in from TVs and music and stuff that could send them on a path of madness. It's influence. Do you mean drill music and some of the why, really aggressive... Why would aggressive it be drill music? Well, because particular. it uses words that... Um, Whatever well, music is not satisfactorily good at the time for youngsters to hear, I'll just put it on that. It's not necessarily just drill music. It's pretty is violent it? stuff, though, isn't it? But then that's like saying they can watch James Bond. What, what, what does James Bond show? He's an assassin and a, and a, a lovely yes. man, but he's an assassin and a womanizer. And he, yes. he's good with guns. And it seems that it's OK, you know? So it depends on what the child's watching and what they take from what they're watching and what they think they can bring into real life. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't listen to that music, uh, but I have... You should try it. I've heard it. I've been quite shocked by it, actually. Shocked by the language, uh, shocked by the... It's pretty anti-women, isn't it? It's, you know, the males are supreme, the women do as they're told. Um, just, it's quite an aggressive. I mean, some of this stuff's quite aggressive. I just feel like it's their form of expression. If you can't express yourself through music, what can you do? I'd rather they express themselves through music than take to the streets and act up. One thing for certain, if, if, you use those langu- if anyone used that language here at GB News, they'd be out the door before. Well, before. What language are you referring to? Like, oh, you know the words they use and, and the way they talk about women. And Anyway, look, I, I don't want to dwell on it, but, but, but I mean, there are aggressive influences out there in life. Yeah. And, you know, I get that. Um, I, I think James Bond, well, yes, you're right. He is a professional assassin. However, however, um, apart from that, he, he takes out baddies, and that's the, that's the moral of the story, I guess. So, Tracy, yeah. you think we can turn this around? You think we can... Ha- I mean, sport 100%. you mentioned, sport you mentioned, and I had... Sport? Well, they, yeah, sport would be good if they could learn self-defence, maybe be a bit more confident when they're out and about, I if had, they got into um, an altercation. Yeah, yeah I, had, I had Duke McKenzie on the programme uh, mm-hmm. a few months ago from Croydon. So, you know, again, South London. Um, and, you know, phenomenal professional, you know, world champion, boxer, all the rest of it. And that's one of the points that he made, was that, you know, where he grew up in Croydon... There just isn't the access somehow to sport unless you've got money. Mm. Um, and it's very, very difficult. Maybe sport's one way. Maybe education's one way. Definitely education. Um, maybe just more people like you going out and doing their best to try and mentor and train people. And parents definitely need to play their part. I understand that parents can get lost in having to go to work and provide for their children, but they also need basic things like love and attention and care. And it, it goes a long way. Do you think parents are scared of tackling teenage kids? <laughs> I work with teenage kids, and yes, 
they are. They are very scared of their children and it's like, come on, get a grip, you, you, you birthed this child. Get back in touch, reconnect. They're still children and I think people don't have enough empathy. It's all good to want to write them off when they're doing wrong, but they are still children mm. and there's a reason for their behaviour, you know? Final thought, Tracy Miller. What role do you see for the church in all of this? The church? Mm. Does the church exist in these communities? <laughs> the church church or do you mean just a religion in general? Just because... religion in general. Because, I, I, you know, I do notice... You know, some Sundays I've been driving through South London and I do notice, actually, there are congregations heading off to churches, kind of, particularly in the black community, some of the evangelical-type churches appear yeah, that can to be have helpful. good followings. That you can know. be helpful. I attended a church, even though I was raised in this Islamic household and I went to the mosque. There were times where I did attend the church and it is a warm and inviting um, environment, but again, it's, it's what those particular parents are teaching their kids when they're away from the church, mm. you know, and it depends on how extreme they are when they're talking about religion and God and, and what children should be doing. So again, it's back to the parents. Yeah, right, there we are. It's up to you folks at home to make sure your teenagers all behave. Tracy Miller, thank you thank for you. joining me here on Talking Pints. Right, it is time for Barrage the Farage, the last couple of minutes of the programme. Here goes. Peter asks me, it seems to me Brexit has stalled. What's gone wrong? Well, I think Boris Johnson thought getting Brexit done was just getting us to leave the European Union. On the positive side, he has appointed Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, to try and get on as Brexit Opportunities Minister. But I promise you, there is still a hell of a lot to do. Northern Ireland's being cut off. There is environmental destruction taking place in the English Channel with so many European fishing boats literally fishing up to our six-mile line every single day. Plus, deregulation, help for small business. There's a hell of a lot to do, um, and it's not done yet. Robbo asks... Do you think it's time to ban Russia from the Olympics and the World Cup and all other sporting events? It's an odd one today, isn't it, that a 15-year-old girl who's failed a drug test actually will be allowed to still compete in the Olympics because I guess she say, they, they say that she's that age. Um, it does appear that Russia industrially cheat at all sports, uh, and perhaps for that reason they shouldn't be welcome. James asks, do you think the UK government will end up reducing the green levy. I think the UK government are in for a hell of a shock, uh, whilst there are uh, people who have very principled objections to fracking and they're worried about the environment. Uh, I, I think the fact is that the counter-argument, the counter-argument that the UK should be energy self-sufficient and that we cannot drive millions of families into complete poverty... Uh, because of green subsidies. I think those arguments are going to get really, really powerful over the next few months. Laura asks me, would you have liked to have your own pub? Um, do you know something? I did once look at taking over a pub. It was 1993. Uh, and I've seen some friends uh, who've gone and taken pubs, and it was always their dream. And I think this, if you like a drink, the last thing you should ever do is take over and run a pub. Uh, I don't think it's a recipe for a long and happy life. Ken asks, I think we need to have a referendum on fracking. What do you think? <clears throat> I think we need a referendum on the whole net zero proposal. Why? Because it's been imposed upon people without any public discussion. There is no difference 
between the political parties. Literally, no difference between them on any of this stuff. And we'd never have got to 25% of our electricity bills being green subsidy if we had proper debate, open politics in Westminster. So actually, it is a little bit like the European question. Everyone agrees, and you're not allowed to have your say. So I think we may, in the end, even have a referendum on it. One viewer says, have you ever watched The Office? No, only in very, very small doses. Um, yeah, look, tell you what, folks, that's it. We are done for the day. I do think those subjects we've talked about today, whether NATO and the EU should continue expanding, whether we should actually become self-sufficient and start drilling our own gas, these are going to become massive issues uh, and ones that we're going to debate maybe for years to come.